Judith Butler is an internationally recognized feminist philosopher whose work is incredibly difficult to summarize in just a few minutes. The author of more than 20 books of groundbreaking critical theory, her thinking has fundamentally shaped my own relationship to reading, to the question of embodiment, and the responsibility of imagining alternative socially just futures. And she's shaped so many others' ability to wrap their heads around the body politic, the politics of the body, and the unbelievable complexity of our relationships to one another. Because it's so hard to really capture the extent of Butler's influence, I want to focus on her most recent writing, partly because she admits that her thinking has significantly changed over the years. So while she's been concerned with the question of grieving, and in particular of the politics of grievability, for almost two decades, her most recent work is differently centered on the problem of how life in the now deeply nihilistic stages of neoliberal capitalism might be safeguarded against increasingly normalized destruction. In our conversation, Butler explores the implications of Arundhati Roy's plea for the coronavirus pandemic to be seen as a portal. She stresses that the outcomes of the virus, the effects that it will have on society, are not yet decided. The way she puts it is that the pandemic is a disease of the interconnected world, but seen from this perspective, the virus exposes the profound inequalities that characterize and that corrupt our interconnection and interdependence. Rather than creating more alienation and apathy, Butler hopes that this reality might serve as a potential basis for a radically global politics of equality, but explains that this will likely only become possible if we can learn to conceptualize our interconnection in new ways, to actually perceive the relationship between untimely death, inequality, and structures of oppression. In this interview, I was especially struck by Butler's explanation of the meaning of outrage. For her, outrage means that we refuse the intolerable nature of our circumstances, but it also means that when we're faced with unending violence, there is a kind of unrealism or utopian power that emerges, making a seemingly impossible politics of nonviolence conceivable. If it's true that, as a form of life, human beings are intrinsically prone to aggression, we have plenty of evidence of that, we are not doomed to violence. Violence is a practice, an action, a way of living, as Butler puts it. What it manifests in her view is not only the destruction of life and of social bonds, but also the authorizing and unleashing of violence, even when the goal of violent action is to end violence. One gets the sense that Butler knows that this is a difficult proposition when we consider a situation like the one faced by Palestinians who live daily with the specter of death and destruction. But Butler speaks explicitly here to the ways that Israel's invocation of a quote non-reciprocal right to self-defense legitimates in advance any and all of its campaigns of bombardment, its wars on Palestinian life. Self-defense in this context constitutes what she calls a tactical instrumentalization of a right, one that strategically ignores the fact that Palestine does not in fact have a national self that can be defended under the dictates of international law. Its people cannot claim an equal right to self-defense when attacked. This produces a situation in which Israel, it's increasingly clear, seeks what Butler terms the genocidal liquidation of the Palestinian population. 
and the only check on the Israeli state's drift toward greater and greater genocidal violence is, in her estimation, a fairly weak international community. And yet, she notes, the Palestinian people persist. They persist through daily practices of resistance, through humor, a specific sort of steadfastness, and through militant grieving and community support. They persist in spite of the inability of the international news media and the international community to register in vivid ways the reality of Palestinian life worlds. So I wanted to start um, by discussing the talk that you delivered through Verso's YouTube page um, in, I think, July of last year. You devote a lot of critical energy in that talk to the question of whether or to what extent the pandemic conditions that we're all to different extents suffering under might be a portal. And you invoke Arundhati Roy's poetic way of approaching this question of, you know, what our current moment will mean. Your fear, and it's one I definitely share, is that the pandemic is going to be more of a blip, a momentary disruption of this great global machine of capitalism. One of the key problems with this theory or assumption that the p- pandemic would be a, uh, as you put it, great leveler, uh, as you point out, is that we've we've underestimated the pull of the market and failed to really grasp how the economy replaced the world in thinking about collective flourishing. While Roy says that the um, pandemic is a portal, she also, in a conversation with Amani Perry, talks about how the post-pandemic world is one being prepared for us rather than by us. It's not a world in which we understand social relations interdependently either. So if those of us that imagine a post-capitalist future were unprepared for the rupture that COVID-19 has represented, how can we learn from that missed opportunity, basically? How could we have perhaps prepared better, I guess, is the question. I, um, well, well, let's, let's uh, take this apart a little bit and, and think about different dimensions of your uh, important question. Um, it seems to me that when Arundhati Roy um, called for the pandemic to be a portal, she, um, it, it was an aspirational claim, right? It was a, um, it was a petition. It, it was a call. It was a, it was a wish, a hope. Um, she, it was not a, a prediction. Um, and, and so we need to maybe distinguish between the, the kind of, the kinds of speech acts at issue here. Um, uh, and I think Angela Davis said something similar to the effect that let us take this cessation of hyper production um, uh, as a chance to rethink our world. What what would we like the world to look like and be like when it when it recommences? Um, so I'm not sure either one of them were particularly naive in making that call. I think it was uh, an important moment of reflection. And as we know, um, the so-called world is still fairly closed in parts of the world um, that are not um, uh, properly or sufficiently vaccinated. And uh, I'm aware that uh, Argentina is shut down as we speak. I'm aware that many countries in Africa have yet to see a vaccine. Um, 
So the so-called world is not a single world. <laughs> there are perhaps many worlds of um, of the pandemic, and they um, and what we're seeing is, uh, I suppose, a partial opening, a partial closing, a um, um, maybe even a flickering or oscillation uh, between opening and closing. Um, so it's hard to say with um, in a definitive way, you know, when is the world opened? Is it open now? Is the world still closed? What do we mean by the world? Um, so I wouldn't say, um, to go back to your important question, I wouldn't say um, that the chance to rethink and remake um, was entertained for a brief moment and then the capitalist machine came back in and prepared the world for us and recast the world once again as market. Um, I'm, I'm not, I don't think the verdict is in. Hmm. <laughs> I think we're in a dynamic uh, situation. Certain things um, have in fact changed. Uh, think about um, the, the great attention paid now to um, black lives and in particular to um, police violence against black and brown people in this country and think as well about the reverberation reverberations of the movement for black lives across the globe. We're seeing uh, versions of it in the Middle East. We're seeing versions of it in Europe in um, among the indigenous in, in South America. I mean, we are uh, we are in the middle of a process. I also think um, that socialism has become more thinkable rather than less. Um, I don't know if I would predict um, a resurgence of socialism throughout the world, but I am struck by the fact that the discourse has changed, that people are openly debating whether there should be uh, national health care, whether there should be um, a right to shelter for all living human beings, that whether there should be um, a, a, a right to to education, um, free education, and, uh, and a dissolution of student debt, something that would have been unthinkable just a few years ago. Yeah, I take that point. Um... And, you know, it's not to sort of castigate those that didn't have like a set plan in place for this unprecedented moment. It's more about like the sense of a missed opportunity. And so I really like that you stress that the verdict isn't in. The opportunity has not been fully missed. It's still things are still uh, fluid. You and, and I think another part of this is, again, again, it's about how we picture and perceive problems. Um, you mentioned in your talk for Verso that there are, quote, representational forms that sanitize death. You're acknowledging basically how these symbolic and numerical representations of loss don't, and there's this incredible phrase in, in the Verso talk where you talk about how it doesn't etch the contours of inequality into our collective kind of consciousness. Um, those particular ways of perceiving and picturing problems um, are fundamentally missing something. And so I wonder you know, if part of the issue on the left, in a sense, is that we wrongly underestimated the power of existent regimes of visuality, like screens for visualizing problems um, that can, you know, as you as you put it in the book, undermine rather than reinforce the call for radical equality uh, and the intertwined call for the end of violence. 
um, you know, the, the problem seemed to be in part this idea, as you say in that talk, that the world could be this tabula rasa where we don't have to necessarily engage with the weighty history that comes along with stepping through the portal. Um, but, you know, so at the same time, you write in the force of nonviolence that it's necessary at this moment, this specific moment, to think beyond what are treated as the realistic limits of the possible and create this new imaginary that derives its strength from unrealism. And so I wonder to what extent you see this counter fantasy, um, this counter fantasy of, you know, an interdependent, entangled, you know, just world as a counterpoint to assuming that the social world could just be a tabula rasa? Um, is it about being willing to accept the fact that we do inherit a built world, you know, a built environment that we were just kind of thrown into um, while also, you know, trying to imagine a, some way in which a healthier alternative could exist? Um, it's, <laughs> it's another uh, transient question. And I thank you very much um, for the chance to uh, think about this further. Um, I would say, uh, let's go back to visual regimes first. And um, uh, one of the problems I have with the um, uh, the way that we rely on graphs to tell us what is happening with the virus is that um, we look at them and we see, well, what are, what are the numbers? How many people are dying in my region? How many people have been tested? How many people have been vaccinated? How many people have tested positive? And then we, um, we orient ourselves towards public space and safety and the question of hope and the question of despair on the basis of those numbers. Because if those numbers are low, we think for our own lives at least, um, it becomes more possible to move and breathe in the world. And that's what we need to do for uh, our sense of human flourishing. But we're not really um, thinking about those numbers differently. What if those numbers were disengaged from the question of um, how are things going in my region and what risks should I personally take at this point in time? What if those numbers were simply the names of the dead or uh, the names of those living with the fear of death or the stories or pictures of those who suddenly discovered that they are much more fully at risk of serious illness or death than previously thought? In other words, we, don't we, we, we only approach those numbers instrumentally looking to understand what our chances are, but we don't actually grasp they, they are not the visual means by which we grasp the lost chances of other people's lives, the, the loss of their lives or the damage, sometimes very long-term damage to their lives uh, caused by um, the COVID-19 uh, virus. So um, there has to be another visual. It, it can be visual. I'm not against the visual, and I'm certainly not against the graphic. We all rely on them, and it's you know, it's not possible to set them aside and I don't actually have a desire to set them aside, but I'm wondering what can graphically be done for the purposes of public mourning, say, what can graphically be done to make us stop our instrumental way of thinking or even our self-interested ways of thinking 
you know, how safe am I? What can I do? Can I get on a plane, etc.? Those are all self, you know, self-referential um, calculations about my own life and my own mobility and may I now exercise my my privileges again um, and my personal liberty. Um, it's it's not actually a sign um, of of the people who are how, however few there are or, or however many there are the people who have lost their lives or are now living with positive diagnoses some of whom as we know um, are at risk um, are have are, are have autoimmune diseases or um, do not have access to adequate health care um, and or uh, even basic ways of uh, finding shelter. So, um, you know, I just I just would like the graphic world to be reorient, reoriented towards those other questions. I don't want to I don't want to do away with <laughs> with graphic representation or the visual field. Right? It's like it's a no, yeah. It's a it's a difference between a an instrumental and a non instrumental approach. I think. I um, yeah. Oh, sorry. No, go ahead, please. Yeah, I love. I I really like that idea. Um, in the same way that, you know, violence is sometimes assumed to function almost like a almost like a tool, a thing that one can wield. Here, you know, the representation of loss of, um, you know, destruction. Yeah, I, I don't know. It seems to me that there's an interesting connection to be made uh, between the kind of hegemonic control of what counts as violence. And these frames through which we visualize it, staying with the question of how we visualize human tragedy and map out a possible future direction, I wanted to mention Raoul Peck's recent documentary series, Exterminate All the Brutes, um, which is a theoretical, poetic, but also, of course, being a documentary, a highly visual engagement with the impacts of settler colonialism and white supremacy. What's interesting about that series is that you know it's attempting to be a pedagogical resource, but rather than just providing the numbers, it you know Peck instead uses dynamic infographics, these animated maps that you know throughout the series work work to convey the sheer scale of colonization's detonating effects. I think that's the different kind of capacity for the graphic that is worth preserving. Um, but and and certainly like your book, The Force of non- Nonviolence, seems to be one you know in your body of work that is particularly interested in how mediation functions to regulate the interpretation of violence. Like you say, for example, um, you know demographic assumptions pervade our debates about violence in its justifiable and unjustifiable instances. You know we certainly see this play out right now in the you know array of reports that we're, we're receiving on Gaza. I just recently heard on CBC Radio a, uh, just a kind of quick report that listed the number of Palestinian dead while actually spending time with listening to and archiving the voices of alarmed Jewish settlers in the West Bank. The media made a choice in that situation about whose pain to allot time for, you know, dwelling with the terror created by Hamas's rocket attacks while devoting no time to representing, you know, horrifying Palestinian loss. To what extent do you think basically contemporary vectors of mediation have shifted where, especially in this context, like Israel's asymmetrical domination and destruction of Palestine can be questioned? Do you get the sense that this conflict right now looks different? And what kind of optics does that kind of imply? Mm-hmm. 
Um, well, the I mean, I haven't seen the series you mentioned, but I just wrote it down, so I will certainly see it. Mm-hmm. Um, and that sounds very productive. I guess I would also say, um, uh, what would it mean to uh, make use of digital resources to uh, report on on what we what many people call slow death, right? The, mm. the slow death that um, that happens by by virtue of um, lack of medical care, lack of access to adequate medical care. And we know that that lack of access is the result of um, a, a long and brutal history of uh, uh, racial discrimination in this country and indeed in many countries. Um, and, and we can see the relationship between the two, the kinds of diseases that go on um, uh undiagnosed to the kinds of deaths that emerge over time, uh, the death, the death prone illnesses that emerge over, over time, um, uh, precisely among com- communities with, um, with lack of, um, access to affordable and reliable healthcare. Um, mm-hmm. so, you know, I think that we we need the graphic um the radical graphic artists of the world <laughs> to to help bring that into public consciousness and public debate in new ways um it won't just do to have um uh politicians stand up and describe this in language it it it, it is terribly important to do so but i do think that the visual gives people a different kind of um comprehension, but also uh, let's think about um, auditory effects since we are auditory here. Uh, um, Mm -hmm. We just mentioned that um, some mainstream news outlets uh, report Palestinian deaths through number and foreground Israeli deaths through voice. So what's the what's the what's the point counterpoint there between voice living creature who is um, uh, perhaps an Israeli person who's lost someone close to them, grieving and reporting on a horrific experience. They have every reason to grieve and to report on a horrific experience. I don't, I don't doubt that for a minute. Um, but it is so, um, so less often that we, we are able to hear the voices of Palestinians. We hear uh, some uh, who's, English is good or where translators are available, but to get a sense of the texture of their lives and what this loss means for um, actual people or communities is, um, is something that happens all the time. I think within Palestine, those stories are circulating constantly. Um, and yet that world of narration of listening of voice is not um, transposed. It's not translated. It's considered somehow non-existent or incommensurable or untranslatable. And that's where the horror continues, right? Because um, these massive bombardments, which are not just a war on Hamas, they're a, they're a, they're a targeting of, of the entire Palestinian population um, by proxy. And um, that, that, kind of destruction is um is already horrific in ways that stretch language but the fact that 
it, it is not reported or conveyed um, in the mainstream media means that the loss is in some sense ameliorated or denied, which means that it doesn't exist for the rest of the world, which is to add um, insult to unbearable injury, unbearable insult to unbearable injury. Um, so, you know, we do depend on media to help us grieve publicly, and we're all the more dependent now when public gatherings are uh, tentative at best. Um, and and I think that that's a larger issue. You know, if I could return for a moment to your question, what does it mean to for me to commend unrealism <laughs> um, at the same time to argue none of us start with a tabula rasa, right? We, mm. we, we all come into the world and come to our positions through various histories and formations, and they continue to structure us and, and um, suffuse our uh, understanding and our imagination as we live and think about possible futures. Um, my, my sense is that um, when we object to radical racial inequality or we object to radical global inequality as we are now, the global inequality evidenced by the uneven vaccination, which is also uh, a racial division, a geopolitical division, we are um, objecting precisely because we are already somewhere imagining a world in which there would be equal distribution of medical goods that are required for life. Um, mm -hmm. So um, we, we call for that. It's, if somebody were to say to us, um, oh, don't call for equal distribution of all vaccines, don't bring a social justice framework to bear on the distribution of vaccines, that's idealistic. I think we would say, no, it is a norm. It's a principle. It's a it's a set of criteria that we we bring to bear on our understanding of inequality. So I would say we are already imagining when we object. We are already imagining that other world when we uh, when we claim when we uh, that it is outrageous the ways in which Palestinian lives are taken or Black lives are taken with impunity by militarized police or by explicit bombardments. Um, so I think it's not like we stop and imagine a world anew and start creating from nothing. It's, it's not that. It's rather in the, in the moment of outrage, we are already imagining the alternative. Otherwise, I believe we would not be capable of outrage. Hmm. Yeah. And, and this is something that certainly comes out of, um, you know, read a close reading of the force of nonviolence that there is a kind of, you know, a, a miraculous thing that becomes possible when dis destruction seems to be the necessary outcome. It almost, to me, has the structure of a, sort of a Hollywood movie, you know, the least, sure. the least likely outcome is a happy ending when literally there are apocalyptic forces converging on you. But in that end game, um, you can invent um, a means of staving off that destruction. Certainly, you know, my last interview with Andreas mom, you know, presents the same kind of conundrum. I mean, like, look at the fact that the ruling class refuses to budge 
really fundamentally on the structural you know, changes that will be necessary for energy transition. That indicates an acceptance of what you term destructiveness by default. On this point, I know one of the emails I sent you was about the, you know, this stirring speech by Rashida Tlaib, the first Palestinian member of Congress, who gave, you know, this overwhelming address that went viral, speaking to just like the use of media for public grieving. You know, this is a speech that goes viral as a means of reemphasizing the the value of Palestinian lives, right? In that speech, you know, she talks about how there's a crushing dehumanization to how we talk about this terrible violence, mentioning that, you know, ABC News, again, says Israelis are killed while Palestinians simply die. And the way Talib puts it is that this happens as if by magic, as if, as if they were never human to begin with. You know, this is a speech that gets to the heart of many of the questions about grievability that you're raising um, in the force of nonviolence, this this problem you, in a sense, can't get away from. Like, what does it mean to uh, exist in a world where there is an unequal grievability of lives? I guess it comes down to, like, why is the kind of calculus that Rashida Tlaib is gesturing to in her speech such a, such a disturbing one to have to really engage with? Again, the unequal grievability of lives. And why can't, you know, in your thinking, why, why do you keep, keep coming back to this question? Well, I'm glad to answer that. I guess I, I just wanted to maybe go back for a moment to say um, that I think my position might be more unlike a Hollywood script than you suggest. <laughs> 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 but only because the point is not um, to become like a wily trickster in the midst of de- otherwise devastating situations and find a way out right there's a there's an individualism in that there's a character who's who who finds the way out like uh james bond or something um but i i i'm actually i'm actually trying to draw attention to something else which is uh maybe not exactly a way out but a mode of resistance that is coextensive with oppression and if we if we think about Palestine, for instance, um, you know, in the in the time that I spent there, when I was allowed to um, pass through the border, <laughs> you have to enter the state of Israel to get to to, to the West Bank, and uh, I am no longer allowed in, uh, so I can't go there anymore. But it was extremely important for me to go there and to visit several cities and to talk to people who had undergone enormous loss and how they live with the um, the sense that bombardment will, uh, well, in Gaza, bombardment will happen again in the West Bank. People will be stopped. They will be imprisoned. They will be imprisoned for intolerably long times. They will be surveyed. They will be asked to, to betray their closest people. They have also clearly developed a set of practices for dealing with this situation. Now, that those set of practices, we get, you know, we call them daily practices of resistance, which include, by the way, humor, uh, but also what um, Palestinians called sumud, which is uh, which is um, like steadfastness uh, or um, or persistence. These are collectively reproduced among communities and across communities and. Um, there is grieving for the lives that are lost. There's, there's, there's 
uh, massive and protracted grieving, but that grieving is not seen, right? It's only from the point of view of um, the 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 media in complicity with the Israeli uh, uh, state and its military operations um, that those those life worlds are effaced from. Uh, from from sensory experience, we we don't see them, we don't hear them. Uh, we we can't we can't register that grief, that steadfastness, that community support in a in the realm of the senses. Uh, those of us who live at a distance or who rely on um, media um, venues that are complicit with that framing. So um, I don't mean to say, I mean even when. Uh, Rashid Tlaib says, you know, these lives are treated as ungrievable. She's not saying they're ungrievable to the people who know them. In fact, it's the incommensurability between those worlds that is our problem. And that's the, that's the, the, the ethical failure or the political failure of our media world, that that, that distance seems so um, uh, untraversable uh, between those worlds. This idea of yeah that the, the incommensurability of these worlds is something produced. Yes, it's like a structural dissociation, which is also why people who are actively involved in investing in and reproducing industries that destroy their planet may know in one part of their brains that that destruction is happening, but they have kind of institutional institutionalized dissociation, right? They're like. They live in another place. They they dissociate themselves from consequences that they sort of know and sort of choose not to know, hmm. and and exist within that kind of conflicted framework somehow comfortably. Uh, I certainly want to come back to this existential threat of global heating and the kinds of you know I guess the ways in which I'm I'm particularly interested in how engaging with climate change from the sort of theoretical perspective that you and others have, if not invented, sort of refined, which is to say life is organized according to social norms. It can be reorganized. It didn't have to be precisely this way. It is something that struggled over. Like how that is, that perspective to some extent is tested by the urgency of the like empirical threat of climate change. Um, You know, I think there's been a lot of interesting work to try and bridge the gap as it were. Uh, between this sort of, you know, uh, textual critique, critique of social forces, and, you know, this kind of more empirical uh, method. Um, But, you know, I guess to just dwell for another second with how your your work in the force of nonviolence applies to the situation in Israel and how it's escalating and how Israel, in in terms of like the the optics of this particular bombardment, is is losing legitimacy, it could be argued, at a quicker pace than it ever has. Um, I wanted to talk about Israel in relationship to the art, specifically the argument you make about this notion of self-defense as a justification for violence, because it seems like this is still the dominant frame. You know, you're you're working to dismantle the state's invocation of the right to self-defense, calling it, quote, too often a defense of power and even a moralization of murder. Um, and I wondered if you could elaborate on this in relationship to Israel specifically. Like, this is this is a moment where Israel criminalizes protests, imagines a threat, and decides to lay waste again to Palestinian lives 
And, and it seems to be as much about demonstrating a monopoly on violence and, and a capacity for military aggression than anything. Um, how does critiquing and contextualizing this idea of self-defense itself clarify the actions of Israel? How is self-defense used to kind of manipulate the narrative, basically? Um, well, I'm, I'm glad to address that question. I mean, Netanyahu has uh, reiterated this longstanding rationale for uh, Israeli violence against Palestinians recently by claiming that Israel is simply um, exercising uh, self-defense. And um, I gather he went on some major U.S. network, I can't remember if it's 60 Minutes or something else, to claim, um, well, if you were attacked here in the United States, uh, you would defend yourself and um, why shouldn't Israel do the same? Um, and then claims that um, Israel was attacked unprovoked. <laughs> and this is, of course, after the um, the violence at Sheikh Jarrah and the violence at the Al-Aqsa Mosque, which is, as you know, just um, at the heart of Palestinian life, especially for Palestinians who are Muslim, not not all of them are, and um, so I uh, I thought about that again um, when I heard him say this. And the first question we have to ask is, who has a self that can be defended? Is Palestinian self defense a concept? And would he or the Israeli state um, allow for Palestinian self defense as a right? Um, um, a, a right held by Palestinians that um, that is legitimate. The problem there, of course, is that the right of self-defense is being invoked by Netanyahu as a right of nation-states. And the Palestinians do not have a nation-state in the same way. They have, an, they have territories that are uh, forcibly and geopolitically divided from each other. They are, they are they are, those who are in the West Bank and Gaza do not have citizenship rights. Those who are within 48 have second-class citizenship rights. There is no uh, established nation-state, and in fact, Israel has opposed it. So the, if, if the right to self-defense is a right invoked by nation-states and Palestinians are not a nation-state, then Palestinians never have the right to defend themselves when they are attacked. Hmm. So here we can see that... Um, that the, what's, what seems like a um, rationale given according to international law um, is one that uh, precludes the possibility of Palestinians invoking uh, an equal right to self-defense. They do not have a self, a national self, to be defended under this framework, which is one of the, the problems and limits of international law itself as it's currently formulated. Um, but also, it's obviously uh, the problem that Palestinian political self-determination is something that the state of Israel will not allow, and it will not abide, and it will say that it will not abide by that for reasons of security. So the reason it denies um, legitimate political subject status to Palestinians is self-defense, right? So there we have it again. Mm -hmm. um, uh, so 
and there's an, another question here. Like, what kind of self is it that um, uh, enacts such a brutal and genocidal uh, bombing? And I use the word genocide um, with care because this has happened again and again. And um, there are reasons to think that the full liquidation of that population is one of the aims of the Israeli state and that the only thing that keeps it from liquidating that pos- that population is is the ob- objections of a fairly weak uh international community um so i i i think we have to ask what kind of self is it that inflicts violence of that kind against palestinian life um and that believes its defense uh requires that overwhelming brutal uh form of killing time and again. Um, that's, I think that's a really important question. I, I would pose that to Net, Netanyahu if I could. Um, but also, um, if every act of violence is self-defense, and I, I've never heard of the Israeli state claiming um, that its acts of violence are not self-defense. I mean, yes, there is a military court and sometimes they do find excessive violence and they do even punish it. So I don't mean to be uh, too blanket in my remarks, but if for the most part, all acts of violence on the part of the state are self-defense, then um, including preemptive forms of violence, then then it's, it's wars against Palestinian life are always legitimated in advance through this highly flexible and non-reciprocal right. Uh, So it is no right. It's a tactical and nefarious instrumentalization of a right in order to continue a quite bloody and horrific war. Absolutely. And, um, you know, it breeds a certain degree of hopelessness, I think, in people having to engage with these kinds of intractable issues this is to me like one of the the key uh, insights of the book is that you know violence is an attack on bonds like at its fundamental level um there are forces that as you put it occlude the social bond that allow violence the oxygen to erupt um and that seems to be sort of you know one aspect of violence you don't want to just abandon that we need to as you put it in your verso talk accept aggression as a deep and persistent component of psychic life, like it's there, but you also say it is possible to think more broadly about, you know, violence's sources, the linguistic, emotional, institutional, economic forms that violence takes. You're giving us this sense that maybe violence is intrinsic to the human experience, but there is, there seems to be an inherent risk involved in like making that concession that violence is intrinsic to the human experience, that war is somehow inevitable, as though by conceding the point, you're conceding the uselessness of what you call a political critique of violence. How do you see those two things as separate, basically? Um, you know, conceding that human beings have violent tendencies while also insisting on a coordinates of possibility where, you know, violence can be undone, critiqued, curtailed, etc.? Well, I'm I'm actually trying to do something that possibly can't be done, which is to distinguish between aggression, which I would say is a persistent 
a persistent feature of human relationality, right? Our relations with each other always carry the potential of aggression um, and violence, which is the acting out of that aggression in a very particular way. And one, my idea of nonviolence is actually to wrestle with aggression, anger, fury, outrage, all of those, not to pacify them. I'm not a pacifist in that way, mm-hmm. um, but to actually create from them and to cultivate them into forms that are nonviolent, um, which would not be the same as um, getting rid of them or even repressing them. Um, so, you know, we can think about uh, angry art, we can think about uh, angry politics, we can think about uh, furious creations um, uh, and and furious movements on the street that are nonviolent. Um the, the aggression, and on the left, I mean, I was just in an all-day seminar in Palestine yesterday, and I saw about six rifts on the left, and I thought, oh, here it is again, mm. um, you know, with the white guys summarizing at the end, ignoring what other people had oh, said. No. It was just like, oh, here we are again. So, I mean, there are lots of reasons to be angry and to have some real aggressive tensions in our relationships with one another, but... Practicing violence is another thing. So I make a distinction Hmm. between that. So I wouldn't say violence is intrinsic. I would say aggression is intrinsic. Hmm. And violence is a a practice, an action, a a way of living that does not uh, necessarily follow from aggression. In fact, nonviolence depends on our being able to work with aggression in such a way that we don't convert it into violence. and here I'm, I'm also drawing, I think, on several non-Western religions, which, you know, work with this all the time and uh, are, are, I think, in, increasingly important or will become increasingly important to me in time. Hmm. Um, I would also um, say that one of the aspects of the book that seems to have been taken up by people as they think about the pandemic and also climate destruction is this idea of interdependency and the social bond. And you raised it earlier, and if I could just return to it briefly. Yeah, please. Um, you know, I, it's true that I, I offer readings. I'm a comparative literature professor. I'm trained in philosophy. I'm pretty conceptual. I'm pretty textual. Uh, you know, we all have our faults. <laughs> uh, I don't think I would be very good as an empirical scientist. At the same time, I read empirical studies and I read science and the history of science. And as I read, I see that there are some pretty strong conceptual commitments to every empirical study. Um, one can find them um, as soon as one sees what the hypothesis is. What is what is this person imagining? Uh, and, and the way in which... Um, uh, a field is circumscribed and delimited. That that usually involves an interpretive set of decisions, and I'm not sure there's always a lot of mindfulness about how that interpretation takes place. Um, so, um, so I do, um, I think, attend to the empirical world, but I also attend to the frameworks through which we organize our empirical reality. Uh, and... Um, and I think that's maybe the job of someone in what we could call critical theory, right? Like not just to start with the empirical as such, but to ask how it's arranged, how it's presented, what gets to count as a significant fact, what gets occluded. Mm-hmm. Um, um, so, you know, I think 
I think it's um, I think it works hand in hand with empirical work. It's not a an alternative or a um, dismissal of empirical work. Yeah, but I would say that um, you know my early work on gender was um, very often taken up as an individualist uh, stance, like oh, a, an individual person can choose to be a particular gender whenever they want, and um, uh, nearly a kind of existentialist position. Um, but I, I actually, um, have, well, I've changed a lot since then and I've tried to correct for that voluntarist reading. Um, but my, my real concern, and it was even a concern in gender trouble has to do with, um, whose lives count as lives and whose loves count as loves and how, how is it that the denial of the living character of certain people um, already in advance of any possible destruction of that life prepares for that destruction so that when they are destroyed, right, they, well, they were never really living and they were never really counted as a life. And I think that is what um, uh, Rashid Tlaib is, is saying when she's talking about Palestinian lives as uncountable or, as not mattering. Um, and I see the recitation of um, uh, Palestinian lives matter in some of the demonstrations, which is very interesting, linking to Black Lives Matter. Uh, it's, it's, it's enormously important. Also, the pandemic, if I, if I could just add, I mean, the pandemic is linked to climate change in the sense that, you know, we can't really equitably and fully address either without seeing that what happens in one part of the globe affects what happens in another part. And that this kind of interdependency is one that we have to, um, uh, we have to work with. Um, the, the pandemic is a disease of the interconnected world. And, um, and it's a chance for us to see and understand that interconnection, both in terms of radical global inequalities, but also in terms of uh, new potentials for understanding equality. And I, I think it's the same if we start thinking about lives and the relationship to living processes within a planetary framework. That's If we don't have that framework, if we're not able to get beyond national boundaries or even communitarian ideals, we, we will not understand ourselves as belonging to the same set of living systems and responsible for them. Um, and that means also rethinking our ideas of responsibility so that human life is not at the center. Yeah. And you write so beautifully about that in the force of nonviolence, you know, you, you talk about a, a thriving that's bound up with human life and how it's connected to the thriving of non-human creatures. I've learned a lot, um, along these lines from Anna Singh's work. And also Alexis Shotwell, who has a book called Against Purity, which is about, you know, something that you uh, very briefly critique in the book, uh, a certain, you know, tendency toward individual purification or a current kind of virtue signaling sanctimony. Um, you know, the, the thing that Shotwell has been writing about in relationship to COVID-19 is the idea that, you know, the virus is a relation. It, that's how she puts it. Um, and you've talked about it certainly in terms of how it exposes how porous um, our corporeal limits really are 
uh, I think you're like marking a, a, a significant change in your thought in the force of nonviolence when you write that some of our quote habits of constructivism have to change in order to grasp the issues of life and death at issue here. Um, you kind of make a similar similar point in your appearance on the Owen Jones podcast that you know some of your earlier method, methodological approaches have changed over time and sort of become more plugged into a concern with producing a quote social organization of life in which material resources are distributed fairly. This is going to mean contending with the unevenly distributed effects of climate change. You know, it feels like the quintessential example of a force that encourages either extreme alarm or political apathy because, you know, it represents a prolonged situation of dwelling with the the decision. Like, do we accept violence or do we demand structural change? You know, do we accept what you call destructiveness by default or a mass reengineering of the default itself? Yes. You know, I guess I, I really wanted you to expand on this idea of those that don't give a damn about destruction. Andreas Malm writes in How to Blow Up a Pipeline that the ruling classes will not be, their their course won't be changed by persuasion alone, right? So he's advocating a certain level of political violence. What you're saying is that we need to, I think, identify the the character of destructiveness today. The thing that you say in Force of Nonviolence is that destructiveness actually today implies a certain liberation from checks on industrial pollution, market expansion, and embrace of this kind of bottomless sea of fossil capital. You know, we, we, so on the one hand, we have to engage with the material reality, but then we also have to seemingly explain the ways in which, quote, the left and its feminist, queer, and anti-racist proponents of nonviolence get posited as the kind of censuring superego in relationship to this like free-for-all of market expansion. Mm. Can you can you expand on this idea of how we can name and then contest something like destructiveness by default? I think it's uh, extremely important um, to figure out ways to um, link corporations with the consequences of their actions. Uh, they've been protected against uh, that um, confrontation, not just because of what I called institutionalized forms of dissociation, but because there's just enormous complicity. But, but you know, we're seeing in characters like Bolsonaro, right? Like he's mm-hmm. allowing, he's allowing the rainforest to be destroyed. He's allowing his people to be to die. I mean, he it's a, like a revelry of destruction, and it. It only works by denying the reality that is in front of him. So, you know, the left is constantly seeking to link him to the consequences of his action. And what he's doing is um, trying to present himself to the people as someone who will let them have their freedom, understood as their, their, their personal liberty, their market freedoms, their capacity to uh, go out and enjoy the world without fear of the virus, their capacity to enter the marketplace and and accumulate wealth. There's nothing that will keep him from continuing to make that promise, even though it is now explicitly linked to, to to enormous destruction, the destruction of the environment, the forests, the um, the indigenous lands, and also the destruction of his own people. So 
it's it's not enough to just present the material conditions, as it were. I mean, at, as soon as you are, are presenting material conditions, you're also organizing them in a certain way and interpreting them in a certain way. So in the case of of um, Brazil, for instance, you know, how does that information get brought out to the the general public so that so that support not only for that political leader but for the entire ideology for which he stands becomes more radically eroded it's really a question of exposing the contradiction and making the links in ways that finally seem um irrefutable um and i think there is you know there's a persuasion that can happen at the you know at the level of the public at, they are the ones who can bring down the the corporate powers only by um, refusing corporations the political leniency they receive from neo-authoritarian uh, leaders, uh, you know, like Bolsonaro. So, you know, that's just one trajectory of thought that I have here. Right. It's not a question of going directly to corporate uh, to the corporate classes and trying to make a persuasive argument that to the degree that they are neoliberals, they may well fear some of the new environmental norms that are coming along and need to show that they're compliant in order to continue to have access to new markets. So I've seen that kind of exploitation of corporate responsibility norms in order to keep markets open or to expand markets, especially in Latin America. Um, but, you know, that's as close as we're going to get to making a persuasive argument to them. Yeah. Um, you know, otherwise, you know, we're faced with a, a very difficult decision. Like, how do you attack the roots of these kinds of problems when there is still clearly a certain kind of nostalgia for the forever fugitive kind of, you know, individualist self-made man that Trump convinced people that he represented? Um, I really, you know, appreciated your Guardian piece on Trump's inability to concede the election and how that relates to this in- incapacity for grief in general and a revelry, as you put it, in destruction. So, I mean, I think that that is a specific force, a kind of fascist force uh, that we do face. So, you know, some of the arguments for the use of political violence that you cite in the book are based in the idea that there are situations in which it's, quote, tactically necessary to use violence in order to defeat structural or systemic violence or dismantle a violent regime. You know, what I appreciated about your engagement with these arguments, and I'm, you know, I'm really interested in this question of counterviolence, is, is how you acknowledge the, that the kind of, you know, hardline neo, nonviolent philosophy is to some extent vulnerable to a critique that says it's the product of the privilege, the luxury to deliberate on the use of counterviolence from a somewhat stable, relatively safe position of not immediately facing violence. You note that, quote, one of the most popular arguments on the left to defend the tactical use of violence begins with the claim that many people are already living in the force field of violence. I'm, I'm wondering about how you like how you think about counterviolence now at a at an incredibly desperate moment where the verdict is out on what, you know, post-pandemic world we will inhabit. I mean, I, I thought a lot in reading your book about um, this recently unearthed 1964 speech by Martin Luther King Jr., where he talks about how, um, you know, a, a nonviolent philosophy is based on the idea 
that the end is pre-existent in the means. Yes. Um, do you see this as the framework you're working working with in the book? Yes. And you know, can we relate that to any situation, or is there a way in which violence in particular circumstances does need to be used as a a weapon against colonial violence, a means of valorizing an otherwise completely and utterly denigrated subject? Or is violence always something that, as you say, is getting out of hand? Well, um, first of all, let me just say that I I do, um, I learned from Martin Luther King, and I'm very interested in his own relationship to Gandhi. And if The Force of Nonviolence had been a different book, I would have done a more scholarly chapter on that very relationship, and maybe I will do one one day. Um, But King is saying something really crucial here, which is um, that when we decide our political tactics and strategies, we are also always um, deciding what kind of world we want to be living in and what kind of world we want to be making. So I might decide um, to engage in a violent act against another human being because I see how destructive their actions are. Um, and that might be my aim, but the violence I use will not necessarily remain restricted to my aim because the minute I use violence, someone else sees me using it and it gets validated for another purpose that maybe I don't condone or I don't want to see unleashed. And in fact, it, 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 it's not something that can remain tethered to our aims. It it makes for a more violent world. And um, so if I act violently, I put more violence in the world. I, I help to make the world a more violent place, even if I've engaged in a certain kind of calculus that my violence will bring violence to an end. Now, you know, take something like prison abolition. I, especially um, the, the black feminist uh, work on pr- prison abolition. And here I'm thinking about Ruthie Gilmore, Angela Davis, and Gina Dent, um, and their critical resistance project, which is, you know, which started this, you know, decades ago. Um, I mean, for them, uh, the dismantling of a violent institution is a form of destruction, right? It's like taking the prison apart. Um, it doesn't mean um, necessarily going in there with, with an axe, <laughs> although the axe... Uh, might be a powerful metaphor for what prison abolition is. Um, uh, it's the it's a dismantling of a violent institution. The dismantling is not violent. It those who defend prisons will say somebody's attacking the prison system. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, attacking maybe in what sense attacking? Uh, so I I am all in favor of certain kinds of destructions, like let's destroy uh, systems of racial violence. Let's destroy systems of transphobic and homophobic and uh, misogynist violence. Um, Let's definitely use our powers of destruction to take apart all those practices and institutions. So, but I don't think I can do any of those things violently without making the world more violent and allowing violence to circulate in ways that I cannot control. Yeah, I think that's succinctly put. Um, and it's something I'm still working through. 
you know, it's not merely a tactical question for for King, but I'm kind of, you know, I'm interested in the use of, uh, you know, metaphor here to understand the kind of reciprocal relationship between putting violent violence in the world and, um, you know, uh, creating a nonviolent world. Uh, I was kind of, uh, uh, I appreciated this concession toward the end of the force of nonviolence where you're, you know, basically admitting to the reader that you're leaving many questions unanswered. I love that moment because in a way it was sort of inevitable. I mean, you're asking so many questions in this book and many of them are simply open questions, you know, and, and on that question of, I guess, like metaphor in particular, I had a conversation with a member of the reading group that I mentioned. I made a point at a certain stage in our conversation that you were, you seem to be pulling your punches in the book. That's how I put it. And that, you know, you could have been maybe more direct or pointed in identifying, you know, the actual like people responsible, right? Like naming corporate power indifferent to life, that kind of punchier thing. And my colleague's comments were perfect. She reminded me that you are not aspiring to be punchy. You are writing a book about nonviolence. (laughs) You are writing a book about nonviolence as a feminist who believes fundamentally in the possibility of nonviolence. And so like, I was just really caught off guard by how my unwitting use of this violent metaphor to describe the act of making a theoretical, political, ethical point on violence was kind of ironic. And, you know, I guess my question then is about like, how much, whether what extent you think about the impression that your book is going to leave, whether you're conscious in thinking about that impression of your method, your style, and, and, you know, do you take the point, I guess, as a side question, that sometimes theorists who think through violence aren't aware enough of the power of militaristic metaphors, a certain kind of tendency to dominate within intellectual debates, how that kind of structures our thinking? Um, I think I'm probably not so conscious about that. I, I understand and recognize what you're describing, mm-hmm. but I think I'm just inside it in a way that doesn't, um, I mean, I've never been able to choose my style, I, you know, and I, 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 I've suffered because of that and people have criticized me, but um, yeah. but I, I, I don't, I don't think what impression will this make on other people? No, I, you know, there'll be an audience or there won't be, and they will invariably bring out things about the text that I never intended or maybe did, but didn't realize I did. Um, so, you know, I have an ironic relationship to that particular problem. I guess I did want to communicate something about the desire to live in a, in a less violent world. Um, uh, and, um, and I, I realized that I'm in some tension with a part of the militant left that, um, uh, tends to be masculinist, but not always, but I do think it is a masculinist strain, um, that, that thinks about, uh, putting the body on the line in a, in a very specific way. Um, that said, I, I actually feel like you know, if you look at the tactics of civil disobedience, and I certainly had some rough experience with this in my own life, um, people who form human shields uh, to stop corporations from destroying indigenous lands or human shields to stop police from uh, forcing students off their own campuses and denying them the uh, the right to assemble. I mean, 
in 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 any of these kinds of situations. Um, you know, you're you're there linked with other humans, and and police come at you with enormous force. So you're putting yourself right in the middle of the um, the 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 force field. You're you're not taking yourself out. You're you're actually in a violent scene. But the question is, how do you position yourself within that violence? Um, and um, and I think uh, that one takes blows sometimes, or one uses one's body as a block. Uh, if you're able-bodied, if you're young, if you can do that, I think someone, uh, many people my age, are not able to do that without suffering pretty intense injury. I um, uh, I'm not even sure I could with my current um, arthritis wield a weapon. <laughs> so mm-hmm. I think it's important to think about, you know, also the able-bodied fantasies we have about, about militant resistance. It's like, well, who, who's doing that? You know, like, <laughs> like yeah. some of us are going to be writing the editorial or some of us are going to be providing network support of different kinds, but this this idea of the the man to man combat i mean i think it's terribly exciting for some people and they feel like they're really living life um to the fullest uh at such moments but they tend to be transitory they tend to be symbolic they don't actually tend to have the long range transformation of the world as their goal hmm. because if you have the long range transformation of the world as your goal you are making that world at every step you are in your action enacting the world you want to see come into being. And that's why I love King, I must say. Um, and King also, I mean, he put himself right in the middle of violence. Mm-hmm. To, 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 to practice nonviolence is to practice it in the middle of a, of a force field of violence. And it's also to practice it precisely at the moment in which you want to do nothing more than to inflict violence on someone else. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and yet you don't. You do something else with that. right? And that's that's a cult of, that's a, an ethical cultivation of aggression that gives you an alternative. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it's embodied. It's, it's, it's hard. It's terrifying. It's physical. Yeah. Um, and you know, it, it reminds me of Raven wings comment that the white supremacist state is lucky that they're merely asking for justice and not revenge. You know, there, there are, you know, multitude of instances where it, it would have been possible, even reasonable to, as Audre Lorde puts it, you know, use this anger, would, it would be rational to use this anger um, for those, you know, potentially violent ends. But I, and I like that you identify to the kind of gendered nature on some level of the, because I think that goes unaddressed of this kind of, you know, fetishizing of violent confrontation. Yeah, it's it's not going, and able, sorry. And able-bodied and possibly ageist uh, assumption as well. Right. I think that's an important point because the the kind of, you know, the the possibility of what you term safeguarding is going to require everyone, right? This is a world that doesn't have these kinds of strategic but often unstated exclusions. Uh, you know, it's a, it's a world that would, um, as you put it, you know, mean that if everyone is imminently grievable, and uh, you know, I think there's there's something to that radical ethos. The only other question I really had planned was about grievability. And it really comes back to the question of like visibility in some sense, right? Like there's this really moving 
moment in the force of nonviolence where you talk about how, um, you know, and it reminded me of Kimberly Williams Crenshaw's um, argument about the invisibility of black women who have been the victims of police brutality. Uh, You know, the argument goes that if we don't acknowledge these lives as living lives that make a claim and demand on behalf of its own living character, as you put it, they, they will merely disappear. And there's this really moving moment in the force of nonviolence where you talk about the body that, that announces my disappearance will leave a vibrant trace from which resistance will follow. And I wondered about that question of representation of visibility as a means of fighting this presumption that there are certain lives that are always vanishing and that is simply how things are. You know, like how can collective mourning and a form of militant grieving create a shift basically in the calculus around acceptable violence? Um, well, I think that um, collective grieving, public grieving is uh, crucial in order to acknowledge that a loss is a loss and that a life uh, had value and and it also contains this other element, which is a, which is a claim about justice. Um, this this life ought not to have been lost. It ought not to have been left to die or uh, brutally killed in the way that it was. So, if we're thinking in the terms of Black Lives Matter or um, uh, the um, the vanquishing of Black Lives. Uh, in in direct and indirect ways, right? Either through police violence or through inadequate health care. And I think, you know, one reason why last summer was so um, powerful and remains powerful in its repercussions is that we were made to look, um, especially those of us in 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 the broader white world, uh, made to look at 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 just how uh, how badly um black and brown people are um are treated by healthcare systems and um and 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 how much more likely they were to and remain to contract the virus and to uh get very ill and um and even to die so there's a necropolitical assumption there about black life that needs to be uh, brought out and uh, opposed. And of course, when you're in the pandemic situation where that is the condition and the police are also killing you with impunity on the street, then of course, there's going to be a massive uh, revolutionary upsurge, as I think there was and 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 to a large degree re- remains, although taking different forms now. Um, so so that grieving is also a way of marking an injustice and calling for the end to that injustice. And all three things are happening through this, um, through the, the power of public acknowledgement. Mm-hmm. And that said, I, I think there's another dimension to this, which is, um, you know, the sense that, that people have, and, you know, we could talk about Palestine here as well, that the sense that people live with that their lives could be taken at any moment that their their day is not a day in which they assume the continuation of their life they do not con- assume the continuation of their life um it could be interrupted bombarded and and um, eliminated uh 
to to live with that fear and with that understanding is to understand oneself in life as a living creature, as ungrievable, as treated as someone whose life could be taken without that life being marked or mourned or recognized as the catastrophe that it is. So, you know, grievability is also a sense that we have, right? Like some people are very privileged, belong to communities, have a sense of an enduring life. They've got all the health care they need. They're going to live on into old age. They're going to flourish. They live according to ideas of human flourishing precisely because they are grievable. Their lives will be protected. Everything is organized so that those lives are not lost, if possible. And and if they were lost, it would be understood as a terrible uh, a terrible loss, a curtailing of the possible life, a foreshortening of a possible life. But if you live in such a way that you understand your life as always um, open to being destroyed at any moment, then you're already curtailed. You already feel the ungrievability in your sense of your own life. You're, you're made to feel that your life is ungrievable. So you know, it's also a way of living in the world. It's 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 a it's a it's a perplexity for those who are living, as well as for those who are mourning. Mm-hmm. And that you know that seems to be why it's the key, right? Like it's in a sense, you know, so much is housed by this concept of grievability. It is a way of living in the world. It's something that isn't reducible to just the study of death and dying. Instead, it's about how we safeguard specific people's existence. You mentioned the scale of vaccine apartheid. Um, you know, there is a, a calculation there that is based entirely on market principles that has to be fought, um, that certain people deserve to live in the world uh, vaccinated and others do not, based purely on uh, their wealth, their place of origin, and so on. I mean, this to me is valuable in the sense that it's giving us a means of you know, uh, uh, resisting what you call this melancholic norm of disavowal and what I would just call political apathy. But, you know, you're using a particular terminology there to identify this seemingly endless cycle of engaging briefly with violence, determining grievability in, in this kind of rapid 24 hour news cycle, and then largely moving on. There's a melancholic norm of disavowal that attempts to just disregard the portal that we just walked through uh, and and maintain the status quo against that you're posing real challenges and I really you know I won't take any more of your time but I can't tell you how much of a thrill it, it's been to be able to talk to you about these really urgent ideas um great thank you I, I really appreciate this conversation you know um, maybe in thinking about the pandemic and the world to come we can also just reflect briefly on Palestine the you know the massive bombing of community centers and um, hospitals and clinics and schools um, and homes has always been followed in Gaza has always been followed by reinvestment strategies so you know the corporations are lining up it's like oh great we get to rebuild Gaza again until the next destruction and then we can rebuild it again so there's a racket that does walk through the portal, you know, oh, destruction. Great. That's our opportunity. That's a new investment opportunity. Uh, And unfortunately, that kind of exploitation and uh, profit making will, 
will follow quickly. Yeah, this is the reality of, you know, what Naomi Klein calls disaster capitalism. Yes, indeed. And, you know, against that, you know, um, that kind of background radiation of destructiveness, um, you know, you're, you're presenting, I think, an interesting political vocabulary that doesn't, you know, exclude the question of guilt either. Uh, I didn't really ask you about how you theorized guilt, but there's this one moment in the book where you, you say, I'm not sure it should still be called guilt anymore uh there's there's a moment in which it kind of spills over into something more akin i suppose to outrage it becomes at least something more generative it also seems to have something to do with the actual experience of bearing witness i suppose yeah but yeah thanks again okay um, thank it's you it's been lovely thank you, thank so, you so much, much.